0: Seattle's starting to show its best colors again, yes. No, no, this is, this is what we wait for. We, we wait for the tail end of September every year where we get the real Seattle summer. where it's 55, first thing in the morning and 70 by five o'clock in the afternoon, it's perfect. First, um, Thessalonians chapter five is where we're going to be today. Um, that's in the New Testament. All of the books that begin with T in the New Testament are right next to each other, so if you find one of the Timothys or Titus, just turn back a little bit to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're continuing our series this morning talking through the meaning of membership, and last week we looked at um, the fact that when we say membership, we're not talking about perks and benefits And we're not talking about signing up um, to, to merely be under authority or aligned with a particular personality. What we're really talking about is a committed connection with a group of people to follow Christ together. And so we looked... As Nick said last week at the One Another's and the call to live out a life of community in Jesus Christ. And this week, we're going to talk about the relationship between membership, being part of a church, and discipleship. And so, before we read the passage, I'd like to recite a nursery rhyme. And then I'll explain why afterwards. But do you remember this one? Mary, Mary, quite contrary. How does your garden grow? with silver bells and cockle shells and pretty maids all in a row. Okay, before I read the passage, let's just recognize that's not how gardens grow. I have no idea what that rhyme is supposed to mean, but gardens grow through a combination of photosynthesis that draws CO2 out of the air and utilizes the sunlight to turn it into energy, as well as the nutrients drawn from the soil and the water within the soil. That's how a garden grows. The question I want to ask this morning is, how does a Christian grow? And just like that nursery rhyme, there's a bunch of weird answers out there. And what I want you to see this morning is that the church grows as the people of God utilize the word of God in dependence on the Holy Spirit of God in one another's lives. That's it. That's the answer. That's the photosynthesis of Christianity. Okay? And so... To draw attention to those things, I want to just look at this passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, picking up in verse 11, as we pick up in some of Paul's concluding remarks to the church in Thessalonica. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Verse 12, we ask of you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Let's pray. Father, I know that I testify for all who call you Lord here that we desire to grow in the faith that you have called us to. We desire to grow to be more like Jesus in practice. We desire to grow in our relationship with you, our understanding of your word, and the application of the truth in our lives and in our circumstances. And so as we answer the question of what does it mean to be discipled this morning, I pray that you would set us on a path of growth. That we would, as Paul says in another place, be conformed to the image of your Son, that we would go from glory to glory until we reflect him fully and completely. We pray that you would help us with this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. As you can see right off the bat here in verse 11, again, we see this little tiny connective tissue phrase, one another. And as I argued last week, this is the driving and constitutive phrase of what it means to be part of a church. It's all bound up in the responsibility or the commitment we make to one another. And so he says here in verse 11, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So let me say it again. The way that you grow in your relationship with Christ is when the people of God utilize the word of God independence upon the Holy Spirit of God in one another's lives. And we see that reflected here, right? Remember here, Paul is speaking to the church at large. What we're reading here, what we call 1 Thessalonians, is a letter written to an entire church. And it would have been read aloud to the entire church at the service. And so when it says here, encourage one another or even build one another up, it's saying, you collectively church, Speak into one another's lives. You collectively, church, strengthen one another's relationships with Jesus Christ and with one another. Encourage and build up. Look at the other words we find here. Look at verse uh, 14. We urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish, encourage, and help. Okay? This is all exhortations Paul is making to the church collectively to help shape one another's lives. I think the one that's the most helpful for us is that phrase, to build one another up. If you have an older translation, it might say, to edify. Edification uh, has to do with a building. It's an architectural word, okay? To edify a building is to put one brick on top of another, to seal it with cement in between, to make it solid, to set the joices in the right place, to lay the foundation. That is to edify. And so the, the picture here is, again, one of building the church, brick upon brick, mortar between, by building up one another, okay? Now, the reason why this is important is, like that nursery rhyme I mentioned, there are misunderstandings and misexpectations that get in the way here, and I'll just share two with you this morning. One I call the MVP model, the most valuable pastor model, okay? In this case, discipleship looks like I just show up at church and one person who's hopefully charismatic and not boring tells me how to live my life, and there I grow as a Christian. Okay, In our American culture, we have an incredibly pastorally-centric understanding of the church. In fact, some views of church, and maybe you've fallen prey to this yourself, believe that effectively that's, that's the role the pastors do, the ministry, and the church receives it. The pastor is the sculptor and the church is the block of marble, okay? Or sometimes a slightly modified version of this, I think of like baseball, okay? In this case, it's the congregation's job to help fill the seats on Sunday, just like it's, you know, the forerunners on the batting teams uh, filling the bases and then the heavy hitter walks up, right? And it's his job to hit them all home. It's the preacher's job to bring them all to Christ, okay? There's another version of this that's growing in popularity that takes the language of discipleship and reduces it down to mentorship. And so what you need to be a disciple of Christ is to be discipled by one other person. And what you need to do as a Christian is to find one person to make your disciple, and it just goes on like that. That's just not what we see in the New Testament. And I've had young men come up to me over the years and say, I want you to be the Paul to my Timothy. Do you get the reference? Paul was a traveling missionary. Timothy was a young man who Paul adopted, brought under his wing, and even sent out on missions later in life. The problem is, we never see Paul and Timothy in a one-on-one relationship. What we find is Paul and Timothy and Luke and Barnabas and Titus and a whole group collectively working and serving together, okay? Okay. And so what I'm suggesting to you is that the primary way discipleship works is in the body of Christ. The primary way discipleship works is, as it says in Ephesians, when each part of the body does its role properly, the body builds itself up in love. Here's what I'm telling you. I'm telling you that as we saw last week, to be a part of a church means to be responsible For the other members of the church and their growth in Jesus Christ. It means to be part of a church is not just to come and receive in your relationship, but come ready to give. And let's just recognize the obvious. Not all of us are in the same place in our walk with Christ. It can seem intimidating to hear this and go, but I'm completely new. I've not even read the Bible through the whole way. I've screwed up in my life. What could I possibly bring to the table? But that is the glory of how God has chosen to work because it is the word that does the heavy lifting. And so even if you just say, hey, I was reading my Bible yesterday and I was so inspired because look at what it says here and you read it to another Christian, you are participating in this collective act of edification and encouragement, okay? You don't have to bring things you don't know to build the church. You just share what you're learning in Christ. And again, look at the language here, to exhort, to encourage, to admonish, to, uh, to help. The way the body works involves a lot of different ways. But what I'm suggesting to you is simply this. That the way that we grow as individuals and the way that we grow as a church is one and the same, and it's by participating in this word Body practice. Okay. Let, let me show you how this plays out in a few different angles. I want I want you to see this at other places in the New Testament. And so for example, if you look just at Ephesians chapter four, just a few books back. Now we'll we'll come back to this in a little bit but just to pick up a little speed look at Ephesians 4 verse 11. And Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. First and foremost here who does the ministry according to this word, verse the saints if you are a saint in Jesus Christ, which doesn't mean you've lived a perfect life or done miracles or accepted into the, you know, the hall of fame of the Catholic Church, it means that you have been set apart as belonging to Jesus, cleansed by his blood, filled with his spirit. If you are a Christian here this morning, then you are being equipped to do the work of ministry. You are a minister, and your ministry is sitting right around you, to your left and to your right, Okay. It says, we are to do this until, verse 11, or excuse me, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure and stature of fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Now, let me draw out one of the implications of what it says right there. One, When you're born as a Christian, when you're born again, you're born a baby. That's how birth works. And so there's an expression here, a desire, a need, an aspiration for maturity. And how do you become mature? Not by yourself. In fact, one of the dangers of trying to go about Christianity on your own is the same danger of letting your five-year-old child set the standard for their education. That's the whole point. They're immature. They don't know. They are, in fact, in danger of being misled, deceived, okay? I've said it before, and I'll say it again. If you aspire to be a cult leader instead of a Christian, just try and do Christianity alone. Find a cabin in the wilderness, crack open a Bible, and spend 10 years without talking to anyone else, okay? It will take all of your blind spots, all of your misconceptions, and exacerbate them until your understanding of who God is and your expression of it is as bent as it can possibly be. Now, you've experienced it, you've seen it. The people sitting around you this morning also have blind spots, but they don't have the same blind spots. And so when we come collectively and we read God's word together collectively and we share what we know uh, and what we have experienced, and these things collectively, it protects us, it preserves us from being caught up, again, in uh, the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Rather, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is, is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, notice this part, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Non-participation, being only a receiver and not a giver, not being intentional in trying to build up the church impacts the church, weakens the church. It's when each part is working properly that the body grows fully, okay? And so what I'm saying is two things. Again, very simple. One, you need the church, You can have the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, but the way that God primarily works through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God is through the church. You need the church. And two, the church needs you. The church needs you to prayerfully consider what you can bring to the table, how you can share, who you can pull aside to counsel, or to read God's Word together, or to study as peers and work through a text of the Scripture. That is how the body works. Okay, I'll give you another illustration of this, this time from the book of Hebrews. We turned here, I believe, last week, but go again to Hebrews chapter 10. look here at verse 19, and the author of Hebrews has basically just said Jesus has accomplished everything we need for salvation. And Notice verse 19 here opens with a therefore. In conclusion, because of these facts, what does he say? Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Okay. In other words, since Jesus is our sacrifice, our temple, and our priest, since Jesus is everything we need to restore our relationship with God, since the it is finished that Jesus declared on the cross is the absolute Bible truth, what should we do? Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Okay. Now I want you to notice that we could read those as individuals. You need to draw near. You need to hold fast. And that's true. But do you see that little plural pronoun there? Let us. Paul doesn't even say, you should draw near. You should hold fast. He doesn't even say you collectively, you plural. He says, let us. Now, I just made a very common mistake. We have no idea who wrote this book. I don't believe that Paul wrote this book. It's just he wrote so much of the New Testament that I misspoke. But nonetheless, the call here is a collective call and it gets explicit in verse 23, or verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. What should you do in response to this great sacrifice that Jesus has accomplished on your behalf? What should you do to respond to the fact that the way to a relationship with God has been open, free and clear, and you've been adopted into his family? What should you do in the fact that you have a Jesus living and resurrected next to the throne of the Father interceding on your behalf? You should consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. In fact, it goes on, not neglecting, verse 25, to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Okay. And so he says the way that you respond to what Jesus has done is you lean into it, but not alone alone. But considering how to stir one another up, how to build one another up, how to admonish one another, how to encourage one another towards love and good works. And that requires, as we saw last week, not neglecting to meet together. As Nick said this morning, for you to participate in the body of Christ means to participate in relationship. To affect the community of the body of Christ means to function as a community, And so there's no doing what we're talking about today without doing what we talked about last week. It begins with love, and that love leads into discipleship. Okay? But also, I want you to notice the language there at the beginning of verse 24. Let us consider how. What does that imply? Let us consider how to stir one another up. First, it implies intention, doesn't it? This isn't just something that happens. Incidentally or accidentally, it's not just that you bump into edifying another Christian. When it says, let us consider how, it means that there's intention, okay? And on top of that, that intention is preceding. It is preemptive. It is something you do beforehand. Let me just put shoe leather on this for just a minute. What would it look like for us to fulfill this on our Sunday gathering? It means that when you get up in the morning... Or maybe on your drive or your walk on the way to church, you're thinking actively, how can I stir up other Christians this morning towards love and good works? It means that you're actively thinking of people who you heard reports about over the week who have been struggling or who have been rejoicing that you can rejoice with, or you're thinking about people you haven't talked to in a while and you come with an agenda of love and service. You come with an agenda to start conversations that will leave people better than when you started them. You come with an agenda to edify, to build. Okay. Now there are ways to really screw this up. We are all prone to overinflating our self-importance and thinking that the best thing that could happen in another person's life is that they could give us the reins and we could be in control. Okay. I know that I'm really prone to this. Sometimes I warn people that in my head, sometimes I think, let's see, sometimes I think this, and you'll recognize it. Justin Thomas loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, right? Do you know the four spiritual laws? It's an old uh, tract that Bill Bright and Campus Crusade put together. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I am prone to put myself in those shoes and think, you know, if they would just change this, if they would just do that, what they need to do in this situation, what we are bringing is not ourselves. We need to, if we're going to do this, if we're going to how to consider, if we're going to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, we need to remember that there's only one Lord in this church, and that the word that brings life is not found in ourselves, that we have to say with Paul, I know that in my flesh dwells no good thing, and that includes your advice. And so the goal here is to bring the word prayerfully and dependent upon the Holy Spirit to encourage, to exhort, to admonish, sometimes even to warn or to confront, but always God's word, okay? And so do you see here how discipleship works then? It's not just that if we just hang out together, it happens. It requires intention. If we just hang out together, we can grow into all sorts of things. We can grow into a social club. We can even grow into a family, but if we're going to grow to be like Christ, that only comes through engagement with the Word of God. It only comes through prayer and expectation for God's Word to shape and to form us, but it does come through us collectively. Okay. Let me just put too fine a point on this. Let me just step up a little bit on a soapbox this this morning. What is the primary way that God leads in our life? What we often imagine is that if we pray hard enough, some sort of neon sign will appear in the sky and we will know God's will for our lives. The primary way God leads is through the word of God expressed by the people of God. As they give biblical and godly counsel, as they seek prayer with you and as God speaks okay to the degree that Paul even says wait why are you going to sue one another in a secular court why are you taking cases that have happened in your relationship to the church he says is there no one wise enough in the church to decide the recognition here is if this is the place where the spirit lives if this is the place where the word is open if this is the place where there's a loving community committed to me and committed to Jesus Christ, why would I not seek their counsel? But again, in our flesh dwells no good thing. That counsel has to be sought, not assumed. We take people to the feet of Jesus. We take people to the word of God. We open it together and we prayerfully ask God to speak. But what do we see in the New Testament? We see men and women gathered in prayer, and God says, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the work that I've, come, that I've laid before them. We see the apostles gathered in prayer, and when a problem breaks out in Acts chapter 6 and there's people being unjustly treated, they know how to respond because they know the heart of Jesus is portrayed in the word of God, okay? And so what I'm suggesting here this morning again, 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 is that the people of God grow. The church grows, individual Christians grow as the people of God, share the word of God, in dependency upon the Holy Spirit in one another's lives. So what do you need me for? What then is the purpose of a pastor? And luckily, back in our passage in Thessalonians, we find an address uh, to this issue as well. And so notice what it says there in verse um, 12. We ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Okay, now I want you to notice on the front end of this is a one-another statement, and on the back end of this is a one-another statement. Look at verse 14. We urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Is that an exhortation to me as a pastor? No, it's an exhortation to you. But couched right in this language of the body doing body life is the presence and the existence of leaders, okay, of pastors, of overseers, of elders, and they have an appropriate role to play, okay? And so let's look at the role as it's described here again in verse 12. Respect those who labor among you. Okay. Now, I don't know exactly what metaphor Paul has in mind here. When we think of laborers, sometimes Paul likes to talk, talk ar- architecture. And so he says it's the pastors who lay the foundation. And the only foundation that can be laid is Christ. And everybody else builds upon it. But in other places, he uses the language of gardening, He says, I, Paul, I sowed the seed in you church church in Corinth, and Apollos came and he watered, and God gave the increase. I think that metaphor is more helpful for this morning. Pastors have a gardening role in the church, but again, doesn't that sound passive? Doesn't that sound like there's just one farmer and everybody else is just the fruit? So let me change the metaphor a little bit. Pastors are like gardeners who are concerned ecologists. They're focused on the entire ecology. One of the things we've learned over the last hundred years or so is that plants and animals in a particular environment have a symbiotic relationship. Meaning if we just take one little mushroom out of the forest, the whole forest suffers because somehow that mushroom was nourishing nourishing the root system of the major canopy system. And because those mushrooms are gone, they don't get what they need, so the leafy structure decreases, and then there's more sunlight, and so creatures get eaten, right? We move into Australia, we bring pigs with us, the pigs eat all the turtle eggs, and now the jellyfish are out of control, and you can't go swimming without getting stung, right? This is ecology. It's recognizing that there is this working ecosystem, and it's a fine balance. This is like the pastor is gardener. The idea is to cultivate an ecosystem that flourishes and nourishes itself. And you have all seen, all you have to do is turn on your television, pastors who are more like cash crop gardeners, right? They just devastate everything in front of them, and they plant the one thing that works and builds up their own kingdom and their glory. That is not a faithful pastor. A pastor works with cultivates the body so that the body builds itself up in love. In fact, one of the ways that pastors do this is what we saw in Ephesians 4 earlier. God has given apostles and prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers for what? For the equipping of the saints so that the saints do the work of ministry. Okay? One of the things that pastors should do is give you the word so that you can more effectively give it to one another. One of the things that pastors should do is teach so that you all, as it says in the book of Hebrews, might become teachers. One of the things that pastors do is they guide you in the process of disciple making so that you can make disciples. Okay, And so there is a work in your midst, but it is partially vicarious. Do you know what I mean? I mean that the ministry functions not through the pastors, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and teachers, but through their equipping of the church to do the work, okay? In the same way, notice what it says next here. It says, it says that they, you respect those who labor among you and are over you. Did you just bristle a little bit? You're not going to get away from this in the New Testament. The role of pastor is not just a leadership role. It is an authorized role. It is an authority role. It is an overseer role. That's one of the Greek words that we use to talk about leadership in the New Testament, the overseer. Okay. In fact, let's just double down, shall we? Listen to what it says in the book of Hebrews chapter 13. It says this in verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Okay. Can't really squeeze out any distance here. Those are strong words words that we don't usually like. Obey and submit, but it explains why. Listen, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. In other words, here's what the author of Hebrews says. He says the goal of a pastor is the growth of the church and I'm not talking about numerically. I'm talking about in Christ likeness. I'm talking about in maturity, okay? Okay. And so their goal is for your good. When pastoral roles are done rightly, it is just like the benefactor relationship between a parent and a child. Okay. A parent who uses the kids for their own good is not a good parent. Instead, parents are the ones who are up late at night. Instead, parents are the ones who get involved when their kids make a mess and clean it up. Parents are the ones who expel all the energy for the sake of the health and growth of the child. That's like the pastor relationship. And so for that reason, the author of Hebrews says here, obey them, submit to them, because their job is to keep watch over you and they'll give an account. The goal of a pastor is to present his congregation to Jesus as a church that has grown to reflect greater his image, his love, and his goodness. Okay? And it points out here as well, he says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Every parent knows how annoying it is to have to parent somebody who doesn't want to be parented. Every parent knows how hard it is to do the right thing And know that it's the right thing without question. And watch your kids complain and grumble and reject it. Okay. And that feeling comes right from the very heart of God. Because we as a world of wayward children have not heard his word. Have not listened to his truth. Have not followed his paths. But we like sheep have all gone astray each in his own way. And God's response to that is not wrath and anger and rejection, but a broken heart who comes into the garden and says, Adam, where are you? That's the heart of a pastor because it's the heart of God. Okay? So pastors do have an oversight to play. But that's not all. They also function as examples. Consider what it says here in Hebrews 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Pastors lead by walking out in front. Pastors lead by seeking to grow in conformity to Jesus on their own. I love how Paul puts this to young Timothy. He says, devote yourselves to the ministry of the word and to being an example. And he says this, so that your progress may be evident to all. A good pastor is a growing pastor, but the word they're used for progress is the same word you would use for a jungle trailblazer who's up front with the machete cutting the way so others can follow, okay? And so one of the things that leaders means here is example. So pastors teach the church, they pray for the church, they give example to the church, they oversee, they watch over the church. These are the primary ideas of what it means to be a leader. That doesn't mean that they control. That doesn't mean that, they, uh, that the church exists for their benefit. You don't exist to accomplish my mission or Nick's mission or Andy's mission. We exist as servants to serve you, but servants with benefactor authority to shape you, to invest in you, to sometimes admonish you. But even that, going back to 1 Thessalonians, is not for pastors alone. None of the things that pastors do are exclusive to pastors. They are the final teachers, the ones who are accountable for making sure that the word of God remains pure and is passed on appropriately. They are the exemplary teachers who teach so that you know what good teaching looks like. They are the equipping teachers who teach you so that you can teach one another. But teaching runs through the body of Christ. The ministry of the word is not the property of the pastors. In the same way, notice what it says here. It says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you. We talked about that and are over you in the Lord and then admonish you. And that word admonish is a little bit slippery because it's so broad. Sometimes it means to give counsel. Sometimes it's strongly used to warn. Sometimes it just means to instruct or even remind, okay? So it's a pretty broad thing. But notice the next verse. It says you should esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, verse 14. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish. See, here's another mistake I think the church makes the church thinks that the only one who should confront another Christian is the pastor. The only one who should strongly admonish or warn, that's above my pay grade as a pew-sitting Christian. No, it's not. Pastors will give an account for those who are in their care. We saw that in Hebrews. But what it means to be a part of the body of Christ is to care about what happens to the body of Christ to be concerned for their safety and their well-being, to protect them, as we saw, from every wind of false doctrine and from being misled and from the deceitfulness of sin that we're all prone to. You know what I'm talking about when I say deceitfulness of sin? I'm talking about when you think to yourself, it's fine. When you think, I have this under control. When you think, well, it may not be okay for them, but it's okay for me. Right? We are so good at justifying the things that eat us alive. And Proverbs tells us that the kisses of an enemy are deceitful, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. Okay? And so sometimes that means hard words. Sometimes that means admonishment. Sometimes that means confrontation. But always in love for the sake of the one you're speaking to and always, as we'll see in a second, with patience. But there's one last thing I want to add here. Look again with me here at verse 14. We urge you, brothers and sisters, that's the third time that I've read this differently, so I might as well explain. The word there in the Greek, in the language that this was originally written in, is not gender-specific. ESV follows the habit of the New King James, which follows the habit of the King James, of using brothers to collectively refer to a whole community. But it feels out of place in our times, doesn't it? And so it's more faithful to the original Greek, where they use and- andros here, as it, where we get uh, androgynous from, okay? It just means people, anthropos, okay? To recognize here that he's not just talking to the men. He's talking to all of us, and so that's why I said brothers and sisters. So to all of you, what does he say? He says, we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Here's what I want you to notice. God has not given you one tool, one gift, and you just employ it in every situation all the time. So you can't think, well, my job in the body is to be an encourager. Someone else might be an admonisher. Or my job in the church is to be a word person, but not a helper. Somebody else can be the help. Here, he speaks to all of you and he says, know when to admonish, know when to encourage, and know when to help. And can you tell with me this morning that screwing these up doesn't work? What happens if you encourage the idol? Or another way you can read this word is the disruptive or even or the disorderly, or even the undisciplined. What happens if you just go, it's all right, man. Jesus has got you. Don't worry about all of these things. You don't need to do any work, right? You sell them a false narrative. Because although each is called to bear one another's burdens, we will all carry our own load. That's what Paul says in Galatians. You are responsible for your life. And you, if you sit on the couch and say, God, do A, B, and C for me, while you sit on the couch, you misunderstand the relationship you have with the living God. Okay. And so we don't notice somebody who's idle. We don't notice somebody who's disorderly or undisciplined and say, it's fine. We don't encourage them and, and say, hey, you know what, right? We admonish, we warn, we counsel, we instruct. Okay. And in the same way notice what it says next. It says that we need to encourage the faint-hearted. You know what you don't do with the faint-hearted? You don't admonish them. Suck it up. Just try a little harder. Right? You don't become like Job's supposed friends who say, "Well, it's pretty clear to us, Job, that you ruined your own life and if you just get your act together." Right? Faint-hearted is a place of discouragement, and what's the cure for discouragement? Encouragement. And encouragement, again, is not platitudes. It's articulating the faithfulness of God who keeps his promises. It's reminding them that what they have can never be taken from them, and anything that can be taken from them doesn't really matter in the scene of things, right? It is exhorting them about the goodness of God and his promises. That's encouragement. That's what the faint-hearted needs. Then it says, help the weak. Here's another one that you can't just admonish. Sometimes Christians have a tendency to walk into a situation where another Christian has made a mess, and going, "Well, I can see why you made or how you made this mess. Why didn't you just do the right thing?" I remember an old cartoon that Max Lucado put together about bugs. I have no idea what it was called, but there's an occasion where one of them gets stuck in the mud, and all of his friends come along and explain to him how he could have avoided getting stuck in the mud. Okay, but to help the weak means to pull them out of the mud to come alongside to give strength where strength is needed okay and again encouragement can be a good thing to the weak but it won't solve the issue what's required here is help what am i saying to you two things okay one is you've got to diversify your toolkit and sometimes when we talk about spiritual gifts that God gives each Christian at least one spiritual gift for the benefit of the body, sometimes we narrowly confine ourselves to that one thing. Like the Bible college kid I had who said, why am I cleaning toilets when I'm supposed to be teaching? Okay. Or sometimes, sometimes we can do this where we're like, well, that's, that's not my gift. There's a need here. Other people have the gift of giving. I don't have to put my finances on the line or we think well I don't have the gift of prayer or whatever it is you need to diversify your toolkit and you also need to function with discernment okay there are two things involved in building the church one is knowing the power of the word of god and the other is knowing where the person you're at that you're trying to serve with the word of god is okay let's try that sentence again cuz that was bad One is knowing the solution available in the word of God and the other is properly diagnosing the problem in the people around you, okay? A scalpel, which is what the word of God is compared to, the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword and able to discern, to divide between joint and marrow and even the motives of the heart. But a scalpel in the hands of a skilled doctor and the scalpel in the hands of a serial killer are not the same thing. The word of God can be wrongly used to harm instead of heal. So it requires discernment. Again, it requires dependency on the Holy Spirit. I know you don't know what's in the hearts of your brothers and sisters, but you do know the one who does. Right? That's what John chapter 2 tells us. It says that Jesus knows what's in the heart of man. And how many times does Jesus know just the right question to ask? just the right answer to give why is it that the way that he handles Martha and the way he handles Mary is so different why does he talk to one person and we go man he seems so rigid here and another he seems so unconvicted here it's because he knows perfectly the condition of the heart that he's speaking to you don't have that option but you do know the one who does and so discernment here is not just a mental intuition It's a process of prayer and listening and owning up to when you get it wrong, okay? When you fly in, you know, with a message from the Lord, but in actuality, you didn't take the time to listen to what the Lord was saying, okay? And so this only works when it's embedded in what we saw last week. There is nothing worse than trying to employ the word of God apart from a loving community, to just lob bombs of truth at strangers, First, we pursue the one another's to love one another, and in that, we speak the truth in love. And as we do this, we do it with leaders like Nick and like Andy, who exemplify this, who equip you to do so, who oversee this process, and who are vested in creating an ecology where the church grows itself as the body builds itself up in love. You picking up what I'm laying down? Mary, Mary, how does the church grow when the, here, I'm, I'm even going to add an adjective, when the whole body of Christ utilizes the whole word of God through a whole dependence on the Holy Spirit in one another's whole lives, okay? Let's pray. Father, I know I've had to hit this strongly this morning because um, many of us have an emaciated view, a watered-down, a diluted view of how it is that Christians grow. Many of us uh, sometimes have an emaciated view of what Jesus wants to do in our lives, and so we confine him to church things and to Christian things, but then there's the rest of our lives. There's our relationship with our sister. There's how I'm treated at work. There's my aspirations in school. But as Javon taught us over my sabbatical, there's nothing in this universe and nothing in our lives that you are not Lord of. Once we realize that, we realize how ill-equipped we are to go this road alone. And so we thank you for the gift that you've given us in the church. We thank you for connecting us, making us members of one another. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to receive from those around us and to give, that you would help us to grow in our ability to edify, to encourage, to admonish, and to help. I pray, Lord, for discernment that we wouldn't be swift, uh, God forbid, to judge one another, but that we wouldn't even be swift to diagnose one another, but we would take the time like caring soul doctors, to sit, to listen, to probe, to do a full diagnostic and then say, all right, I know the cure is in the word of God. Let's seek his word together. I pray that you'd help us in all of these ways. And for all of you, church, I want to read to you our church covenant. A church covenant is a commitment we make to one another as members. It's something that you will not only um, Uh, sign on to if you become a member in this church but something that we will recite together and remind ourselves of this commitment and here's what it is as those who have been brought to repent and believe in jesus christ by the grace of god being united to him by his spirit we now solemnly and joyfully covenant with one another we will work and pray for the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace we will by god's grace forsake the paths of sin and walk in the ways of holiness all the days of our lives, striving together for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort. We will regularly gather together, engage in gospel community, rejoicing with each other's happiness and bearing one another's burdens and sorrows. We will pray for each other to provide help to those in our midst who are in need. We will pursue the Lord Jesus Christ through the ordinary means of grace and will encourage the same in one another. We will bring up those under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and by a pure and loving example, seek the salvation of our family and friends. We will live carefully and honorably before the world, remembering that as we have been voluntarily buried through baptism and raised again in Christ, so there is on us a special obligation to lead a new and holy life. We will lovingly guard one another from the deceitfulness of sin, giving and receiving admonition in humility and affection. We will bear patiently with one another, diligently pursuing biblical reconciliation. We will work together to promote a faithful gospel ministry in this church as we sustain its worship, its ordinances, its discipline and doctrines. We'll contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry of the church and the spread of the gospel through all nations. Should we leave this church, we'll seek another church where we can carry out the principles of God's words as followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Amen.